Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. I want you to know what a privilege it is for me to be here um, with you today, uh, having an opportunity to share the word, to share scriptures with you. Um, Most of you know that I grew up uh, here in in Henderson, uh, having been raised on a farm uh, not far from here. Uh, Karen and I have been gone for the past 40 years, and having invested most of that time in uh, various forms of full-time ministry. Uh, Now we're home here uh, in my hometown, figuring out what it means to be retired. And I think that's as big a job as the previous 40 years. Um, Many of you, um, your faces look familiar to me. Uh, I appreciate your friendliness uh, and your warm welcome this morning is uh, in keeping with what Pastor Luke has been teaching and preaching as it relates to hospitality. Thank you so much for that. You know, the most amazing a uh, wonderful thing in all the world from a human perspective is that we can know God. And I'm not just talking about knowing uh, about God, but we can know him intimately in such a way that it can be described as a personal, intimate relationship. I, we, we should be completely awestruck by that that idea, that concept, that we can know God on a personal level. To help us wrap our minds around that, which I think is pretty difficult, the Bible uses a whole number of metaphors to describe that relationship that we have. Sometimes he uses, he talks about marriage, Christ's relationship to the church. He talks about us being a living temple in which God resides in us and through us, as Mr. Quaring or Mr. Thiessen reminded us just earlier. The Bible describes our relationship with God in such a way that we walk with him, just as we walk with our spouse and our children. We walks with us. We're his chosen people. We're not just a random group of people who joined the parade at the end of the day, but he's chosen us. He's selected us. He's drawn us to himself. We're called the royal priesthood. We're called citizens in God's kingdom. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, our Father in heaven. God is Father. We are his children, his sons and daughters. The Apostle John would say in his first epistle, Oh, what manner of love the the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And And John says, And that is what we are. That is what we are, children of God. We're called joint heirs with Jesus. We're called his adopted sons and daughters. 
We're looking at shepherd and sheep as the song just sang. And you know, it takes all of these metaphors to describe this amazing relationship because each one says something unique about God and each one of them gives us a new picture and it enhances our understanding of him and it draws us to him because he seeks to commune with us. But there is yet another significant metaphor used throughout the Bible that is rarely ever talked about. And I'd like to share that with you this morning since it plays a key role in the way that we understand hospitality, a topic that Pastor Luke has been developing in the last few Sundays. One of the most prominent metaphors in the Bible, in the scriptures, pictures God as host. God as host. He's the master of hospitality. And, we are to, and if we talk about hospitality and we practice hospitality, it's God that we're looking to. It's Jesus that we're looking to because he's the master at hospitality. Now, I want to look at this from two ways. Generally, here's how God has functioned as host. And then specifically, I want to look at Psalm 23 for just a moment. God is a creative host. Maybe you've never thought about this, but he prepared the entire universe to host us. His special creation made in his image. And when you read the Genesis account of Genesis, of Genesis 1, what you're going to read is a framework in which God takes the first three days and he forms a place. The heavens, the seas and sky, and the land. He forms a place, and then he fills that place, days four, five, and six. He fills them. He fills the, the, the sky with the sun and the moon and the stars. He fill, fills the atmosphere with the birds of the air and the waters with the fish of the sea. He fills the land with land animals, and then at the very end of the day, he creates humans in his image, and we get the sense and the way that the writer puts it together is that all of Genesis 1 is leading us to that moment in Genesis 1.26 where God breathes into man the breath of life. He becomes a living soul and all of the world was designed to host these special people made in his image through whom he wants to share all of this. He's the host, and we're his guests here on this privileged planet. Years later, God was not so happy with creation, and so he decided he was really going to destroy what he had created through a flood. And so he hosts redemptively Noah and his family in the ark. And there he cares for them, he provides for them, he protects them from the enemy of the waves that are there to destroy all of life. But he's the host. He hosts a family through whom he's going to redeem the world in the midst of the enemy, the wickedness of the world. Later he would host his people. In Egypt, he would host them there for 400 years as they become a people, a nation that he would use specially. In the wilderness, 
he hosts a people there and he provides for them for 40 years manna every morning water when they needed it we're told that at the end of 40 years the people's shoes hadn't even worn out and you know they don't make shoes that way anymore but God cared for them. He provided. He protected them for 40 years. He hosted them. Israel at one point complained and they said, ha, ah, ah, can God spread a table in the desert? Psalm 78, what's the answer? Almost surely he can. And he did. And we know that God hosts his people in the promised land. In Psalm 78, it says... Thus he brought them to the border of his holy land till the country, to the hill country, his right hand had taken. And he drove out the nations before them. He allotted their lands according to their inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. God hosted Israel in his land to be a special people, to be a place of redemption, a light to the world, and that tells us something about what it means to be hospitable. He did all of that to make a difference in, in the world. That gives us a taste of how God has been at work in the history. We could, we could tell story after story after story that shows this metaphor that God is a host. But now let's look at it more personally. A little more close up, more specifically. In Psalm 23, it's one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, is it not? I'm guessing most of you could probably recite it by memory. We hear it at memorial services, funerals, on many occasions when people find themselves distraught and in need of comfort. I'm sure Tyler needs to hear that this morning and every day. Well, the image of the shepherd, I think, is indelibly pressed in our minds. Um, the psalmist uses this metaphor of a shepherd's care of his sheep to talk about how God provides and how he protects through his gracious, his wise guidance, his leadership. But interestingly, most of us have not, have not necessarily understood that the Psalm 23 is actually made up of two metaphors. It's not just about a shepherd and his sheep. That ends in verse 4. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Then in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That ain't about a shepherd and his sheep. That is about a host. The metaphor shifts now to talk about God, the shepherd, as hosts. And so he's talking about how God watches over his people and he keeps them satisfied and secure. So if you have your Bibles, your iPhones or whatever you're using, uh, in verse 5 it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The metaphor that the psalmist uses here now is that of a host. He's the master of a home actually a tent who is caring for his guests if i were to state what that metaphor is referring to in this verse if i could just sort of translate it for you into a more literal sense here's what it says and you might want to jot this down 
our guest or our gracious host, he provides more than we need as pilgrims or strangers in a hostile land. That's what it, that's what it means. And so you'll look at, if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll notice that there are three, four lines, but really three. You prepare a table and my enemies, you anoint my head, my cup overflows. This is great Hebrew parallelism and poetry. So in that first line, you prepare a table before me. What God is saying here is he's inviting us to share in his secure provision and presence right in the middle of, host, of host, hostility and oppression. First of all, take a look at what does it mean to prepare a table? I think that's a fairly common metaphor, isn't it? But let's remember, this psalm was written nearly 3,000 years ago. Uh, we, we, we know something about preparing a table as a way of showing hospitality and entertaining guests. However, this metaphor needs to be understood not in our terms, but in the terms of shepherding, in the, shirms, in the terms of a Bedouin society in which this was written. And that, that society actually still exists in some places. Okay, think about this. Traveling 3,000 years ago was a very dangerous occupation, especially in remote rugged terrain, including deserts, just like the Judean wilderness where Jesus fasted for 40 days. Remember, there were no streetlights, right? No paved sidewalks, no pathways, no rest stops, no restrooms, and few, if any, hostels or, or hotels. Traveling at night was extremely dangerous, and you did that at your own peril at, and at your own risk. You just encouraged ruffians and thieves and wild animals. And of course, the story, as you know, of the Good Samaritan tells us all we need about why that's a problem. Uh, Roland DeVoe, a scholar of ancient Near Eastern society, writes this. He said, hospitality is a, notice, a necessity of life in the desert. But among the nomads, the Bedouin, this necessity, now get this, has become a virtue. A virtue. And a most highly esteemed one. Why? The guest, get this, get this. The guest is sacred. The guest is sacred. And it falls to the leader of the family of the group to provide. The stranger can avail himself of hospitality for three days. Imagine that. Somebody invites themselves over and it's your job to care for them for three days. No, but that ain't it. He has the right to protection for a given time after he leaves. You're thinking about hospitality. This is the backdrop right here for it. Forget, forget current practices. This is the backdrop. Now you, you probably know that there are several R-rated stories in the Bible that describe how sacred guests were and how far hosts would go 
to display their honor in protecting and providing for them. Remember the story of the angels visiting Lot in Sodom. Remember that R-rated story? How about the R-rated story of the Levite in Judges 19 who stays in Gibeah of Benjamin and what occurred there? You want to read some really harsh stories, those are it. But those stories are about hospitality. In most cases, a host would protect his guest to the point of death because once a guest has been received into a home, they were under the protection of the extended family and cared for as though they were their very own and more so. Now, that goes beyond what I think we typically understand in practice. But while in the home, the guest would go out, the, the host would go out of their way to provide a hospitable place where refreshment and rest could take place. And so this metaphor of um, preparing a table has a long history rooted in the ancient Near East, and that is the background to the Bible. Now, we know that it's still at work today, right? We still talk about preparing a table. We still talk. We may have gone to a sumptuous banquet. Anybody done that lately? And we said we left. We sat in the car and talked to each other and said, boy, did they put out a spread. We still use, we still use that language. And what we mean is that this, this, this table was filled with near endless variety and lavish amount of food so that it could fill every stomach and satisfy every palate with leftovers, no despair. But what is unique here, however, in Psalm 23, and, and, and get this here, what is unique is that the host provides for and he protects his guests while enemies are all about. We don't typically think of Psalm 23 in the context of enemies, do we? But it's central to this psalm. What purpose does the mention of enemies have in the psalm? Take a look at this. The, again, this, this concept of preparing a table in the presence of enemies has ancient roots. Uh, in the late 1800s, nearly 400, I'll give you a little bit of archaeology here if you don't mind. In the late 1800s, uh, nearly 400 clay tablets were discovered at an archaeological site in Tel El Amarna, which was the new capital of uh, Akhenaten, uh, the father of King Tut. And in one of those tablets, uh, written around 1350 BC, a regent from Canaan writes this, and he says, May the Pharaoh give gifts unto his servants while our enemies look on. Hmm. Yeah. For a king to be able to provide, for a host to be able to provide for his servants with enemies looking on, what does that say? It gives evidence of his power and it worked to enhance his honor and his glory. And that is definitely what the psalmist has in mind here. 
He pictures, he pictures the Lord as host, providing the finest of hospitality while enemies looked on with anger and envy and frustration. He anoints his guest's head with oil. He fills their cups to overflowing with fine wine. And he welcomes the, to feast at his table. And all the while, enemies around are grinding their teeth, rattling their spurs. But they're incapable of doing anything because how glorious the Lord is. Now, what might this metaphor mean to us today? What is the psalm? Let me, let me make an application here for us. We all know that the world is, can be a quite hostile place. There are forces at work all around that, that are seeking to stomp out Christian faith, moral values. Opposition to God's kingdom is evident most everywhere. To, not, to deny that is to be super naive and foolish. The scriptures indicate that that's the way it has always been. Millions of people have been martyred over the years. More people will be martyred this year than at any moment in history. The enemy is here. You see, the world, that is the system that has been in place since the fall, opposes God. It's under the control of the evil one, and it is his mission, as Jesus said in John 10, it's his mission to steal, kill, and destroy. And so it's no surprise that Scripture clearly tells us that this world isn't our home. We're strangers. We're aliens here. The world is a wilderness that we're traveling through. It's a dangerous place. We have to be careful how we settle in and what we become comfortable with. You, you, do you know that the world has its own way of inviting you into its tent and preparing a table for you? Are you aware of that? That can look overwhelmingly tasty and succulent. Something like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Kind of getting the point there. But it's not a food that satisfies. And we can't find real peace and rest in that tent, at that table. That tent is more like the tent of Jael who hosts Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army and gives him warm, curdling milk to drink, puts a wonderful blanket over him in the corner of the tent, and then drives a tent peg through his brain. That's a little bit more like the hospitality that the world is hosting. The Apostle John said, hey, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. And the world and all its desires are passing away. But the man who does the will of God, the man who sits at God's prepared table, in a sense, he lives forever. 
Now that's kind of a negative picture. Let me flip it, okay? Let me flip it more positively. We have a God. We have a God who prepares a table before us in the midst of this world. He's still providing. He's still, he's still protecting his own. The devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give life, and he came to give it abundantly. A feast of life. And through the cross, Jesus has defeated the enemy, and he gathers us together around his table in the presence of a defeated enemy, demonstrating his power and glory and there he offers peace and security and the devil and all the world aligned with him can only grind their teeth and breathe out their threats but we're at the table with Jesus okay for a moment I'd like to show you the glory of Jesus. Would you like to see it? Let me show you the glory of Jesus in relationship to this part of Psalm 23. A thousand years after this psalm was written, a thousand years later, we see David's greater son enacting this passage. Jesus prepared a table for his disciples in the presence of enemies on the very night he was betrayed. In fact, the betrayer was sitting at his table. And he was enjoying Jesus' hospitality. And what we refer to as the Last Supper, Jesus served as host. He took off his outer garment. He tied a towel around his waist. He washed the disciples' feet, all of them, including Judas's. And then, as host of the Passover meal, he served a meal. He took the Passover meal and he infused it with new meaning and made it a meal of redemption. Notice what it says. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, Oh, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave it thanks and broke it, and he gave it, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, the third cup of Passover, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The enemy is right among us. 
Here in the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus prepares a table of redemption for those he had invited to follow him. The upper room is a safe place because Jesus is there, is he not? Jerusalem is filled with enemies, particularly the religious establishment who threatened and vowed and schemed to kill him. But in the midst of these enemies, Jesus offered the only real safety and security that matters, and it was the meal of himself. Jesus is both host and meal. He's the bread of life, right? And his blood is the guarantee of salvation. He would tell the Jews in John 10, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life at all. And so what, and, and interestingly, what Jesus said and did around that table was intended in some sense to be an invitation to all the world that he that works through his disciples and all of us who join them at that table of redemption. And it's an invitation to all the world, to every, every tribe, language, and nation that they would come to the table of redemption that's been prepared for them through his body and blood, his very life. The enemy, the enemy, sin and death, it casts its shadow in the room as it casts its shadow over our life with Satan filling and empowering Judas to carry out his despicable deed. But all power and glory abides in Jesus because he has the power and authority to lay his life down and to take it back up again as he desires. And therefore, defeating the enemy utterly and securing salvation for all who would accept his invitation. I'm going to move you to the last verse of Psalm 23. I'm going to end there. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Just a couple thoughts here. What he's saying here is that our gracious host pursues us with goodness and chesed, his steadfast love. The word follow in your translation is a very weak translation. The word means to pursue. In Hebrew, it refers to an army chasing down an enemy to destroy them. So it's the word pursue or chase, not follow. Do, do you, the enemy is chasing you, but do, do we know that God's goodness and his steadfast love is chasing us even more so. He'll run you down. His grace and love will run you down. You can't outrun it. So we ought to stop trying, don't you think? 
If, we're, if we are afraid that sin and death and the enemy are chasing us down, stop! Because God's goodness and grace is way beyond that. He gets to us first every time. Every time. There's no, there's no opposition. There's no grief. There's no enemy that you are experiencing first before God's goodness and steadfast love has already chased you down. It's true. It's exactly what the psalmist is saying here. The word chesed, which is the word for um, mercy and grace, is used 300 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, all of them, almost all of them within a covenant context, which is, speaks, the covenant context speaks of God's, hear this, it speaks of God's unilateral love. It's not dependent on anything you do or any of your love back. The New Testament says, this is love. God loves us. He first loves us, right? God first loves us. We love because he first loved us. It's his initiating love. But we will dwell in the house of the Lord now. Let's close with this. Our gracious host is preparing a permanent place for us. And it's distinguished not so much by the place, but by his presence. It's a big difference. The concept of dwelling in the house of the Lord obviously refers tangibly to the tabernacle or to the temple where God was known through his Shekinah glory to dwell. But metaphorically, it refers to God's eternal presence. His presence. We may be in the presence of enemies, but God's presence is more real. It's greater still. John would say, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Spirit of God indwells us internally. Whatever opposition there is comes from the outside. Jesus would say in John 14, while he was at the table, don't, be, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms, if it weren't so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me, with me, so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is hosting a meal in the presence of enemies, knowing that they've pursued him to death. He assures his followers that as gloomy as things appear, all is going to be well. He's hosting a much grander meal and banquet in a much greater room than the upper room. And all those who follow Jesus are not only invited, but they are going to be ushered there by the host, by the host.
And the point of what the psalmist is saying here is that it's not so much a matter of looking for something in the sweet by and by. It's not so much about gold streets and mansions and the things that sometimes we sing about. No, it's, it, it's where Jesus is. That's the thing. It's there. In Revelations 3.20, the very last words that Jesus would say to the church, he says this. Listen, listen carefully. Listen to the invitation. He says, here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who hears my voice and opens the door will eat with me and I with him. Like a good Mennonite, he invites himself over. But he says, here I am. I'm here to prepare a table for you. And where I am, my glory is. Are you hearing the knock? It's Jesus calling. It's Jesus calling. And maybe you and I are like so many others who've climbed a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. But Jesus' love is pursued ahead of you and he sees you and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I'm coming to your house today. Please invite him in. Please invite him in. He's the host we all need. He is. He's the host we all need. Because there he prepares a table of love and grace, of forgiveness, no matter what it is that we are experiencing, no matter how deep we sense that we are hurt and wounded, he is knocking. Let him in. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care, and God bless.